Well, good morning. As been said, we will be in John 15 and 16, beginning in verse 12 today, as a part of our unveiled series as we walk through John together. Let me pray for us, and then we can begin. God, what a worship you've given us already. Remind us afresh how your love never fails. We sing it together, and we see it working, and now teach us through your text, same lesson. Your love never fails. Let us hope in that when times are tough, when trials come, when persecutions abound, your love is not failing. Instead, you are very lovingly exposing Jesus Christ to the entire world through our suffering and also conforming us like putty in your hand to the image of Jesus. So teach us these things from your word today. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. You've probably heard this before, but do um, you remember where you were on 9-11? Think back to that, where you were on 9-11. I had the, <clears throat> the privilege and challenge of spending 9-11 with uh, a, a bunch of off-duty stewardesses. stewardesses. And uh, we're actually watching the whole thing un- just unfurl there on the television screen. It was odd to be going through that with someone who actually knew, because they were in the airline industry, someone who died, uh, and they knew it. And it was shocking, and I could tell right away that nothing would ever be the same for these people. Julie and I got married on 9-11 plus 11, and so I'll never forget going to the airport, and I was going to surprise her uh, with the honeymoon location, right? And back then, if you don't remember... You could, you could go up to any gate with any number of people that you wanted to. It was very lax of airport security was. And so I had this plan of not telling her until the last minute where we were going. And I would get the tickets with her ID. You could do that back then. And then I would uh, go to maybe the Boston gate, right? And we would sit there. And then I was going, no, no, we're going to the Hawaii gate. No, that's not it. And so I was going to play this long, drawn-out, somewhat romantic game with her. And uh, I remember I had it all planned out, and the moment we walked to the RDU airport, right, you know, right when you walk in and the glass doors go, I was met by this security guy who was like, where are you going? Uh, uh, you know, I'm just getting married. We're going to walk. Nope, tell me right now your final destination. And I looked around, and there were dogs in the airport and long lines where there weren't lines, and there were police officers where they weren't supposed to be. And I knew this is never going to be the same. And that's what happens when crazy disasters happen. Your reality becomes wobbly, right? It begins to teeter. And it doesn't have to be a disaster to make you feel this way, right? It doesn't take a natural disaster to rock your world. It could be a relationship bombshell right? Or um, uh, something deep that happens in your marriage. He introduces pornography, and you know it's never going to be the same. Or uh, she once again lies about an area of your relationship, and things have gone astray. Those are real things. It could be a financial downfall. You don't know if the lights are going to stay on this month or not. All of these things can be such shockers that we don't know what's going to happen yet, and next, what, what do we have for us, God? And 
I'm so glad that Jesus speaks to these things here in this, uh, this section that we're in in John 15. The disciples have one of these moments. They're about to have it, and Jesus knows it. For them, their 9-11 was the moment when their master, their teacher, their friend, their leader, their life for the past three years was arrested, put on kangaroo court trial, and killed. Everything changed for them at that moment, and Jesus saw this coming. And this entire section that we're going through, chapters 14 through 16, was actually Jesus' gift to his people. Back then and now, people he knows are going to go through tough times. He gives it to them for them to reflect on after the fact. For instance, it's almost like when I was a teenager, I remember being like 14, and a wise old man in the church came up to me and he said, I've got some investment advice for you, son. <laughs> and he proceeds to tell me how to invest the money that I don't have, right? What it, you know, I was too young to handle it. He knew that, but he also knew he had some good stuff. And when I got older, I looked back on that and thought, hey, that's, that's a wise word that old chap gave me. Similar thing that Jesus is doing here. He knows his disciples can't handle it when he gives it to them pre-death and resurrection. But what we see in the scriptures is after the fact, things start to make sense to them and they're going back to his words and they're finding life there. In the midst of their deepest trials, they go to the words of Christ and they are invigorated spiritually and they're able to hold on. Specifically, you can look in chapter 16, verse 4, before we get started. Jesus knows this. That's why he says, I've said these things to you so that when their hour comes, you can remember that I told them to you. And more specifically, in chapter 16, verse 1, look what he says. He says, I've said all these things, why? To keep you from falling away, right? Falling away means to stop believing in God, to forget that he is for you, to cease trusting that he's working in all of life to bring about his grand plan. Jesus knows that will be your temptation when the bottom drops out. You are going to be able to, you're going to be tempted into thinking, what's going on here? Christ isn't working. He's going to say, no, remember what I said, that will give you life. And that's the real danger for us today, is to fall off track when life hits us and hammers us with trials and tribulations. And that's why we have this text. I remember also, post 9-11, there was a lot of figuring out to do, if you remember. There's a lot of interrogation, some of it bad, some of it was appropriate, but there's a lot of question asking going on about what in the world went on. And that's what the disciples did. Apparently, and that's what I want to do today, they did what I want to call a vital interrogation. They looked back at what Jesus said, and they picked it apart in order to fully understand it, knowing that within his words, there was life and there was hope. And the pragmatic among us might say, well, does that work, actually? You know, the get-or-done types are going to say, I don't want to do this if it doesn't work. But if you look at the disciples, every single one of them persisted in faith after the resurrection. Now, Peter and Judas doubted him before the death and resurrection, right? But all of the disciples that we see going back to this discourse, going back to these words, are able to take faith and hope in the midst of tremendous persecution and trials. And that's what I want for us today as a church. So what we're going to do is just 
interrogate this text, if you would. It's a great way to study the Bible on your own. If you ever get bored during quiet time, try this. Come to a text and just start peppering it with questions and see what God has for you. That's what we're going to do today. We're going to have 12 or so questions from the text. So let's start here, chapter 15, verse 12, and read together what Jesus says. Jesus says first, this is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. So Jesus here issues a decree that his followers should love one another, and the concept is very simple. We're moved by God's love for us, and in turn, we let that love flow out to others. Jesus loved us in a certain way, and we're going to love other people in the same way. That much is obvious, but here's our first question. What about love for God? Interesting that Jesus doesn't bring up love for God here. Isn't that our greatest need during trials? Why is he talking about loving each other before you go through these hard times? We'll keep a couple things in mind. First, this is not meant to be a slight on devoting yourself to God, loving God. Recall in Luke 10, we have it recorded that Jesus said, the way to earn eternal life is to love God, of course, with all your heart, your soul, your mind, and your strength. So he's not, he's not promoting a focus that's not on God. Instead, what he's introducing here is this love for one another that's actually an expression of your love for God. The expression itself is meant to be your worship, your love, your affections for Jesus. It's much like Romans 12, where before Paul talks about how to love each other in the church, he says, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, offer your bodies as a living sacrifice. And then he goes on to say, you should be weeping with people. You should be showing hospitality. You should be loving. That is your love for God. That's one expression, not the only expression, but that's one expression of loving God. So Christ's emphasis on our love for one another in this text doesn't cut against his passion for us to be devoted to God. But it brings up another line of questioning here, if you would. Why in this text that's positioned in the middle of a broader text that's meant to give hope to people going through trials, right? And it's positioned immediately in our smaller context before specific instructions about trials. Why is he bringing up loving one another? In other words, if you were counseling somebody who you knew was going to go through a hard trial, why would you say, and by the way, during your darkest hours, you need to be loving people? Why does he say that? It seems odd, doesn't it? But here's the, here's the point. Here's why he says this to us. It's because Jesus knows that during our lowest points, our nature is going to be to run away from one another in fear, right, or hurt, rather than to turn toward one another in love. Christ is sure that in times like this, there's going to be self-pity that creeps in. Self-pity comes from a seabed of pride, right? Self-pity says, I deserve better treatment than this. And that pride will lead to unbelief. The way you battle that, Jesus says, is you point the barrel of love straight at one another and you shoot it because when you're loving one another, you begin to enter into their trials, right? And you begin to see that we are all being touched by life. We're all being uh, surrounded and molded by these tribulations. So it's actually almost counterintuitive that Jesus says, in the midst of your trials, don't forget to love one another. 
the last thing you might think about, but that's actually going to cut against the self-pity that will kill you spiritually, stretching out to one another in love. So the best way to fight this isolation that spawns self-pity is to focus on one another love. Here's another question that comes up. What's the texture of this love among us? What's it going to feel like? What should I be doing? What does it taste like? What's the texture of this one another love among us? Well, the text is going to cough up a couple of answers here. The first one, Christ says, love like I loved you, right? And he elaborates over the next few verses and gives us a couple of different tones of love. I'm going to look at those real quick. The first is found in verse 13 the first tone of love that we're supposed to be showing. He says, greater love has no one than this. This is what love looked like. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. Now, that someone's going to be Jesus. He's going to show us how he lays down his life, but it's also supposed to be an example for us. Through his death and resurrection, Jesus gladly gave his life for who in the text? His friends, right? He gave his life for his friends. So that question that should arise now is, who are Jesus' friends for whom he laid down his life? Who are these friends that he's willing to die for? The people he grew up with? The people he relates to? The people he has common interests with? He gets their jokes? He's attracted to them? Is that who his friends are? The people he works with? Now, verse 14, he says, you are my friends, here's the condition, if, You do what I command you. In other words, friends to Jesus are the ones characterized by obedience. In the Old Testament, I only found a couple of people that were noted as friends of God. It was Abraham and Moses. They're said to be friends of God. Here in our text, though, this offer of friendship is for anyone who would come and obey the words of Christ. So we can summarize a little bit right at the start what we've uh, seen so far, what the text has yielded for us. We're to love one another as Christ has loved. One way to do this is to love sacrificially those who are obeying Christ. Jesus sacrificed for his friends. We too are to sacrifice for one another. Who are the friends? The people who are being obedient. Another way to say that today is the people in the church, right? If you're somewhere floating outside of the church, we can't necessarily say you're being obedient to what the New Testament says. But you can focus on people here at TCC who are the friends of Christ. And now we can have some self-interrogation a little bit, right? How can we live sacrificially towards others in the church? It's a hard question. How can we live sacrificially towards others in the church? Here's one tip that might help some of us. Begin to compare how you respond to people at your workplace with how you respond to people at church. And we're motivated to sacrifice at work, right? As we can get ahead, we can gain power, get approval, get a raise, more money, more prestige, more stuff. Many of us have fine work habits and we're all the time bending over backwards for others. Those same expressions exist within the church, but from different motivations. From love, I'm motivated to bend over backwards for someone else. If you have a client email you or text you, I bet you get back to them, right? Even if it takes 20 minutes, 
You're going to answer them. Such it is in the church if you love someone, right? It's motivated by this Jesus-centered love. Are you willing to travel for your work? And you leave your family all the time. You're willing to make these sacrifices for the sake of your career. Are you also willing to make sacrifices of your time and resources for the church? Someone asks you, hey, I need some help on your free time. Are you willing to make that sacrifice that you make for your work? You have the capacity to pull it off. That's what I'm trying to say. You do these sacrificial things all the time. It's just from different motivations. Jesus is saying, do these same expressions to the people in the church with the motivation of love. And that's when we begin to pull out even through our toughest trials. Sometimes sacrificial love just means the shedding of our own rights. The shedding of our own rights. We were in community group this week and I really felt the Holy Spirit was speaking. Um, We were talking about this kind of stuff and, and someone put it this way. They said, sometimes humble love to me means I have to disappear. It's the disappearing of myself and that's what sacrificial love means. I disappear. Sounds a lot like Philippians 2.7, right? Remember that one? Paul says, Jesus empties himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient, even to the point of death, death on a cross. And here's an example of hope. Because I contend that if I can change, anybody can change, right? So here's my example of of turning by the Spirit. This weekend we had Disciple Now. Awesome. What that is is we gather our youth, about 20 of them, and we throw them at your houses. And they land and they live with you. And you have middle schoolers up in your kitchen and all in your closet. And it's crazy. It's great. But what they're doing there is they're doing intentional discipleship. They're having Bible study. And so that's what's going on this weekend. We're finishing it up this morning. And so... um, uh, for better or worse, I offered my house. I said, yeah, sure, you guys come over to my house. And then I gave my list, right? But here's what I want. I listed off my favorite kid. No, I didn't do that. But I did put some boundaries. And as the weekend started to launch, it became apparent that some of my boundaries didn't make everyone feel loved, right? And I was actually reading this text. It's an awful feeling if you're a preacher, but you're reading the text, <laughs> And Jesus is like, oh, I'm talking to you there. You need to sacrifice. So it's like, oh, so I go to the youth leader and I say, listen, all that stuff I said, forget about it. You do whatever you want in my house. Uh, and, and that was God changing me. That's not to promote me. It's actually to say if I can be changed, anyone can be changed. Sacrificial love also apologizes. Again, this week, if, 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 if you feel that you're very slow to apologize and you never hear the words, I, I'm sorry, come out of your lip, it probably means you're self-righteous and you're not willing to sacrificially love people. I had, again, this chance, the chance this weekend on Friday. Someone came to me and basically said, you screwed this up. And I was like, ah, right, I'm so sorry. That was on me. And then Saturday, someone said, you screwed up. And I was like, oh, yes, you're right. I'm so sorry. And I thought to myself, Part of sacrificial love is taking a hit, right? This is what God is teaching me personally. Not Again, I'm not your model here, but I am proof that even a dummy can do this. God comes in and he says, you've got to take the emotional 
hit here. So there's your question. If you don't take a hit, it's hardly supernatural, right? Where, where can you take a hit this week in order that your brother at TCC feels love? This week, what can you give up so that your sister in Christ can feel love? Very practical stuff here from the text. And let's keep going. We've looked at sacrificial love in the Bible. Now, look with me at verse 16, because here's a surprising way that Jesus loves his friends that you may not have thought about applying in your life. Remember, the umbrella here is, I want you to love one another like I loved you, and Jesus now brings something else up. Seems like it's almost out of the blue. Verse 16, you didn't choose me, but I chose you, and I appointed you. Question six, what's this about? In what way did Jesus choose his friends? And by the way, didn't I choose Jesus way back then when I got saved? Didn't I decide to follow him? What's he saying here? What does he mean? In what way did Jesus choose his friends? Well, there's a simple, immediate way that he's talking about that he actually physically went to Andrew and Peter and John, and he said, hey, you're going to follow me, right? Come, stop fishing, stop collecting taxes, and come. In that simple, immediate way, he chose his followers, but he's also talking about a broader, deeper choosing here. And it's the idea of God's choosing or what we call God's election that he's mentioning here. In the Old Testament, when we think about the friends of God, Moses and Abraham, it's rarely mentioned. They're each said to be chosen once. But usually in the Old Testament, when God talks about choosing folks, it's the whole people of Israel that he is choosing and bringing to himself. But in the New Testament, In bigger texts like Ephesians 1 and Romans 9, we have this idea that God actually grabs people salvifically for himself, and he chooses who he's going to pour his love upon. So simply, the idea of election that he's bringing in here is that God lovingly sets his affections on those he chose as his children, even before and apart from their choice, to follow Jesus. So you're thinking, whoa, how's this work out? Well, what he's saying is, think about when you got saved, when you came uh, to Christ, you may have made a decision. You may have prayed a prayer. You filled out a card. You said, yes, I'm not going to follow those desires anymore, and I'm going to choose to follow Jesus. What he's saying is, even beneath that choice, you need to know that I chose to come to you and by the Holy Spirit reveal myself to you Even before you chose to follow me, I chose you, and I targeted you, and I focused in on you, and I revealed the glory of God to you specifically. That's what he's saying. In other words, God struck first, right? He's emphasizing that God struck first because this gives God the credit, the glory. Ultimately, your salvation depends on God's choosing choice, which depends on his purposes. It makes him happy to choose a specific people for himself, and that's what he's saying here. And this is supposed to be awe-inspiring. I want to throw that out there for you, the idea that God, before time, came and he said, I'm going to love this person. I'm going to set my affections on them. Even if they don't deserve it, I'm going to chase them down and by my spirit show them how beautiful I am After they see that, I'm going to keep them all the way until they turn into little Jesuses. They're conformed in the image of of my son, and they can stand before me in bliss. You're supposed to see God, and you're supposed to say, thank you. That's a big God. 
This is much more than my little decision. This is a plan that's been going throughout all eternity. And that's what we're welcomed into here in our text. And that's what I want to welcome you into here. If you're not a follower of Jesus, see this amazing act of Christ coming as a part of God's plan, as a part of his uh, plan that he chose some. For those he chose, Jesus came, left heaven, and died so that those for whom he died would have everlasting life. Their guilt is removed. They will be recreated. That's the good news. And I invite you into that if you're here as an unbeliever. But why, circle back to the conversation here, why is he bringing this up in the conversation of love, this election stuff, right? Because remember he said, love these people the way I loved you, right? How am I I going to show people the electing, choosing love of Jesus? What would that look like? A couple ways. First, I want you to feel the freedom to be intentional with your acts of care. In other words, have you ever heard this one? Somebody might say, well, you know, if I do something for someone, I can't do that because then I would have to what? Do it for everybody, right? Some of us use that sometimes to let ourselves off the hook. But that's not what Jesus is teaching here, right? If you want to care specifically and choose someone within the body to pray for, invite them over to your home, love them, hug them, pray for them, weep for them, you don't have to choose every member of your community group the same amount of time. Feel the freedom. If you want to go visit someone who's been sick, that doesn't mean you have to visit everyone else that gets sick. No, he's saying you need to be intentional. Follow the Spirit and choose strategic ways to care and to love people. And perhaps, secondly, more important than that, the intentionality is that the important thing about God's electing love is that it gives God all of the glory, right? So when you are loving, we are pushed within your love acts to bounce all of the credit back to God so that he is magnified. Here's an example. Just two weeks ago, someone showed my family an act of love, and they happened to do it. Just dropped the love thing, dropped it. And it was anonymous. I I went to see, oh, who's this love thing from? And there's no card. And I'm left looking around. Who do I think? Who gets the credit here? And I was like, oh, duh. God must be glorified because someone chose me. And I felt like I'm so in awe of God right now. This is awesome. So that's the kind of way. That doesn't mean all of your acts of love have to be anonymous. But that was one creative way that someone found to touch my life in a way that I glorify God. And that's what Jesus is promoting here. All right, let's keep this interrogation moving. On all of 16 here, you didn't choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that what? You should go and bear fruit, and that your fruit should what? Abide. It should remain. It should stick. It should stay so that whoever asks the Father my name, he may give it to you. Question eight, what is to be the result of our election by God in Christ? What's the result of our choosing, um, Christ's choosing of us? Well, look at the text. Well, the disciples, they were to go, they were to bear fruit, and it was to be the kind that lasts, right? And such is our lot as well. We are to go, we are to bear fruit. It's got to be the kind that lasts. Now, fruit bearing is used in different ways in the New Testament for different things. 
But here, it at the very least includes making converts to Jesus. That's the context here. Going out and making converts to Jesus that grow up into mature discipleship. This appointment, this appointment talk there in the text, that's usually used for someone who was appointed for a certain ministry. Abraham was appointed as father. Joshua was commissioned to do certain things. We are appointed for a certain ministry, and that includes making disciples, making converts through the gospel. And that's nice. So as we talk about Jesus' choosing people, if, if choosing lands on you, if the idea of God choosing folks lands on you in a, in a bad way, you're just like, I don't know about that stuff. That seems unfair. Whatever you, whatever you say, know that the end result is supposed to be people coming to Christ, right? That's the end result. If you love the doctrine of election, if that's your thing, you love it, you should know you should love evangelism just as much because that's the end result of Christ choosing people. Others will bear fruit. In fact, that's often a criticism when, we, when people talk about Jesus' and God's right to choose people, this idea of election. It's, the criticism often goes, well, hey, if you really believe that God chooses people for his own, why do you share your faith at all? God's just going to choose them and make it happen. Why do you share your faith? It's interesting, though, that the people that I know who are out there sharing don't do it like that at all. I can think of two very successful missionaries, and they actually have this verse as their life verse. Jesus chose me, so I'm going to go and bear fruit. It doesn't bear itself out that uh, if you believe that God chooses people that you won't evangelize. Clearly, Jesus has in mind that our choosing was to be to the benefit of other people here. And that's the point. Now, starting in verse 18, Christ will begin to speak directly to persecution issues, right? Believers being persecuted. Now, these are always hard texts. Why? It's hard for us in this culture because we're not feeling it right now. You, you have trials, you have tribulation, you have struggles, but most of us are not being condemned for our faith. And that's what he's going to talk about right here. So how are we going to handle this? Well, we do have our own personal 9-11s, like I was saying earlier. We do have our own personal trials. It could be your marriage is fading away. It might be your declining health. It makes sense that Jesus picks one thing, and he focuses on it really good here. He can't pick all of them, but he knows the disciples' big 9-11 is not going to be their failing marriages or the finances. It's going to be this persecution. And so he's focusing in on it. So let's Let's figure out why he does this. One of the ways Christ knows that your trust in him can be dislodged is through personal rejection because of your faith. So we're just going to go a little deeper into one area that can apply to you, even though you're not feeling the persecution currently. And think about it. If you do ever receive flack for trusting Jesus, it's going to be very tempting to walk away, isn't it? I remember even when I was a young kid, I was in this transition. We're doing disciple now, so kids are on my mind. I mean, youth, young men are on my mind. And uh, I remember the stage when I was moving from um, maybe what you would call playroom toys to outdoor toys. Uh, and we had some sleepover at my friend's house with a bunch of guys. And I, you know, I don't know, I was 11, 12. And I bring along what made sense to me, which was a sleep toy, a, a teddy bear thing, right? 
Made perfect sense. I love playing with those guys. Brought it along. Well, it got some of the guys I was with didn't play with those, right? So they were like, ah, you're still a little boy. I remember. I remember specifically. What did I do? I denied my teddy, right? <laughs> I, I put him in my pillow, and I denied him. And Jesus knows that's human nature. That's not Travis-specific, I don't think. Maybe the teddy bears, but that impulse to hide when ridiculed, when ridiculed socially or persecuted, that exists in all of us. So Jesus is going to address that now. For them, it's intense persecution. Look what he says in verse 18. If the world hates you, know that it hated me before it hated you. So it makes sense perfectly. The ones who persecuted Jesus are also going to persecute his followers, his disciples, right? That's what he's warning again. And this happened early on. Even before John wrote this, we have records of historians, Roman historians, calling Christians mischievous, superstitious people. They already looked down on them right away. And the world here simply means those people who don't follow Jesus are going to hate you like they hated Jesus. Question, interrogation, number nine. Why does the world hate us? Jesus makes a connection. They hated me, they're going to hate me, but why specifically? Look at it in verse 19. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But here it is. Because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Did you catch it? Because you're not like them, you're not of the world, therefore they are going to hate you. It's as if Jesus' spiritual presence in the disciples stirs antagonism. His holiness in you pricks their own self-righteousness. Your light spotlights their darkness, right? And as far back as there has been faith, this has gone on. Remember, Cain killed Abel. Abel's light provoked Cain's darkness. Look at verse 20. Jesus said, remember the word that I said to you. Here's the word. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they'll persecute you. Jesus has touched on this theme already in the book of John. You might remember in John 13, verse 16, he says the same word. A servant is not greater than his master. The idea is that the disciples or us thought that coming to Christ was a call to a life of ease. We've been grossly mistaken. We're not greater than our masters. And ultimately, he's calling his disciples and us to embrace this path of turmoil as the path to glory, right? This path of suffering through it. But ultimately, the disciples have no control over how they'll be received, right? What he's going to say here, actually how you receive is how people feel about Jesus, not how people feel about you. Look what he says, verse 21. All these things they will do to you on account of what? My name, because they don't know him who sent me. Also in verse 23, whoever hates me hates my father also. So question 10, what principle can we glean from this text about rejecting us today, people rejecting us today? What can we learn here? Well, we need to be emboldened by this sage wisdom from Jesus that says when people reject you, when they go against you, when they persecute you for being a Christian, for sharing the gospel, they're actually aiming at God. They're swinging at God. God and not you. That can embolden you, some of us. We want people's approval, and we need to know that people's disapproval is not directed at us. It's directed at the one who made them. 
And furthermore, as Paul Tripp has said, God sends his son to deal with those who hate, not to condemn them, but to ransom them and by grace transform them into people who love. So these back, this, this, this uh, text here will remind us of a hidden truth. When you are most down, you can be most used by God. When you are most down, you can be most used by God. In other words, in the midst of our trials, we have to remember that God has this dual cosmic agenda, right? On the one hand, he's trying to show all of the glory to Christ to the entire world through your trials. There's aspects of his glory that will come out through your suffering that won't come out otherwise. And also at the same time, he is molding you to be like Jesus. He might choose your credit problems. Your back pain, your rebellious daughter, those might be the very things, your father's cancer, that allow you to bear witness to Christ. And that's the point of Jesus here. In their case, it was their physical persecution. That allowed them to bear witness to Christ in a unique way. For you, it might be something different. Verse 26, there's a twist. Jesus says, I'm going to send a helper here, right? But look how, the, look how he's helping. It's going to shock you. He said, when the helper comes whom I will send to you from the Father, he will be the spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father. If I filled it in from here, I would say, when the helper comes, he's going to rescue from all of this stuff, and you'll never have pain. That's how I would have written it. But look what he says. He doesn't say that. When the helper comes, he will bear witness to me. What a shocker. What a reminder that our story is a part of a grander story. Earlier, he said the Holy Spirit's going to come, and he's going to be your advocate. He's going to be your comforter. And so he will help you. But in this text, he says the Holy Spirit's going to come in the midst of your persecution, and he's going to bear witness to Jesus. Well, question 11, what does the disciples' persecution have to do with me then? Because you might reason, I may go my whole life without seeing persecution, right? What does this stuff have to do with me? They're going to be persecuted. I get it. I've read the history. It's a rough time, but we're not having that in America. What's it have to do with me? I won't see that. Well, one, you might. You might be wrong. You might see persecution in your lifetime just for being a Christian. Let's not try to prophesy that. But as for today, second point, here's what God has for you in the text. You too will see pain don't lose faith. This is how Christ has always glorified himself. He's borne witness to himself this way. In other words, taking on the identity of a follower of Christ means chiefly this. You now exist to see him magnified. And trust that in your pain he will be magnified, even if you don't see it. Even if you don't understand it. God promises to magnify him that's the pattern in the scriptures that we see over and over. Samson or Shadrach, Martha or Moses, Peter, Paul, Esther, Sarah, Mary Magdalene. Picture a hero. God used all of their pain to blow himself up and to shine his glory to all he wanted to see it. So as you are going through trials, know that God is conforming you to his image and working his good purposes. Last question. Why did Christ say all of these things? Why 
that Jesus give us all of these things. Specifically, we've come full circle. 16.1. Why did he say these things? He said these to keep you from falling away. This is no pat on the back, right? This is no health and wealth stuff. He cares ultimately that your faith is sustained. He doesn't want you to fall away. We don't talk about that enough probably in our church, but in the New Testament, it's a very real danger that we could look around one day and someone's just not in their chair anymore. They've stopped coming, right? In the New Testament, we have several examples. Ananias and his wife, a sweet couple apparently, were members of the church. And Judas, they all succumbed to financial temptations. Apparently, they just fell away, stopped being Christians. They lost the faith. Demas, a man that Paul mentions, right? Apparently, couldn't bear to let go of the things of this world, so he walked away from the faith. They're being exposed as never being true believers, right? A guy named Alexander and Hymenaeus, two other guys who were in the Scriptures, who followed Jesus when they started, and then for some reason they began to blaspheme God. Another man named Philetus in the New Testament. Paul said this guy went astray apparently because he started believing that um, Jesus isn't going to come and raise people in the future. Maybe he had a sickness. Maybe he had a physical trial that captivated his moment-by-moment existence, and he began to doubt that God could conquer sickness and death through the resurrection, but he fell away. An entire, entire church at Thyatira, it's a city in the New Testament, a lot of them were being deceived by this prophetess, a woman in the church, just like one of our women here, perhaps, a good woman in the church. She started teaching foolish things. This false prophet called her Jezebel, and she was leading people to lose their faith. God knows, and he gives specific examples in the New Testament that it's common for people to say, I want Jesus, I want Jesus, I want Jesus, and then something happens, and they don't want Jesus. They want something else. They want the comfort. They want their money. They want their relationship, and they're exposed as not being truly Christ followers. So why did Christ say all of these things? To keep you from falling away. Christ doesn't want you to be numbered among these people. As daily vitamins taken for your protection, we are to read these words and be invigorated by the last words to his first disciple. These warnings are supposed to serve as a road sign. Danger ahead. Get off that road of self-trust. Focus on Christ and persevering with him. Like chapter 6, verse 4 says, I've said these things to you that when the hour comes, you will remember them. This is supposed to be preemptive to your trial. And as the disciples are going through these trials, they are comforted to look back and know that this isn't catching God off guard. All of your trouble is not catching God off guard. It's a part of his plan. It's a part of his song. It's a part of his narrative. He wrote the novel. We are a part of it. And he's working these things for our good. So here's a summary of our interrogation. Jesus is calling you today. Jesus is calling you, if you don't know him, to embrace the beautiful realities based on his salvation. Your innocence before God can be dependent on his power, not yours. His choice, not yours. His works, and not yours. He's calling all of his followers to love the church 
with both sacrificial and intentional love. He's calling us to evangelize and bear fruit that lasts. And he's calling us to view our trials as a part of his grand plan to conform us to the image of his son. We're going to take the Lord's Supper here together in just a moment after I pray. This text should give you a lot to think about, right? Think about what's going on in your life and how to rightly view it, right? And then how to worship God in the midst of it. So we're going to invite everyone who's a believer to take the Lord's Supper. After I pray, we have tables at the front. We have one at the back. Whenever you're ready, you can just go to the table, take the bread, take the cup, come back to your seat. And when you're ready, we ask that you take the elements. If you're not a believer, we just say, watch us a family meal. Just watch us, see what we do. Pray to God. Ask him to show you something. If you are a follower of Jesus, Pray about these things that we see in the text. Ask him to shape you into someone who is strong enough in their faith to endure the trials that we all know are coming. Let's pray together. Father, we lift up to you through our brokenness, through our sickness, through our messed up relationships, through our poverty, through our sons and daughters that aren't behaving as they ought. God, through all of these trials, may we look with Jesus and say, you are working here. God has a plan. We can persist. You chose us, God, and you will see us to the end. And God, let us love one another well through this. As we, as we come into our own trials, let us not shut down and just in a nasty way, wallow in our pride and self-pity. Instead, push us out to love, even in the midst of our trials, God. I pray this, and many more blessings in Jesus. Amen.